So I would say if, if this is really what you want to do, get out there and do it. Just work on projects for yourself. They're going to look horrible at the beginning. It's the way you got to get all the horrible stuff out of the way before you start to make the better stuff. So it's easy to get frustrated and be like, oh, you know, I give up. But you got you just hang on. Just, just hold on. Just push through. Things will start to get better. That was Edinburgh University art professor Carabo Luela, who teaches computer animation here at Edinburgh. He joined us today on Tartan Talks to discuss what it's like being an up-and-coming animator, to have your work shown at national stadiums and at the Cannes Film Festival. He also talks about what it's like to infuse culture and history and traditions into your stories and into your characters. Originally from Botswana, Karaba received his Master's of Fine Arts from RIT in computer animation. He's also worked with national companies and had some award-winning pictures that he's been a part of. Today he talks about his experience and shares what it's like to not necessarily have the best beginning work, but to keep going, to keep working, to keep doing your best. Thanks for joining us today on Tartan Talks. This is Tartan Talks, a podcast from Edinburgh University. I'm your host, Christopher LaFuria. Each month, we'll take a look at individuals who make Edinburgh an exciting, diverse, and profound place to discover your passions. All right, thank you so much for joining us today on Tartan Talks. We're here with Carabo Laguela from the Edinburgh University Art Department. He has been here since 2016 as a professor of computer animation. He has spent 10 years prior to this as the lead technical animator for Four Directions Productions. He is originally from Botswana. He received his Master of Fine Arts from Computer Animation at RIT in Rochester, New York. He also has his bachelor's degree in computer science from Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. So, Carabo, thank you so much for joining us here today on Tartan Talks. Thanks for having me. So, it's a kind of an interesting podcast since we are an audio show. We're going to be talking about animation, which if anybody knows anything about animation, it's very visual, very colorful, but we are here with a professor who is good at explaining things, so hopefully we can do this justice without actually seeing the, the animation itself. So, as somebody from Botswana who's lived in northern United States, you've been kind of across the Western Hemisphere. And I'm sure you've gotten a lot of different experiences. So what originally led you to the animation field? Well, um, like you said, I started on computer science. I was, always, I was always a very computer sort of techie guy. And I like programming and sort of self-taught at the beginning and then decided to go to school for it. But somewhere, somewhere along the line in my uh, computer science education, I, I sort of bumped into this 3D, 3D animation. And I was like, wow, this is, this is fun. So I started doing that on my own just for fun, and, and you know I graduated. I, I, you know I'd always want to be some kind of programmer, and then I, that's that sort of fell by the wayside because I wanted now to, to get into animation. So I decided to get a master's in uh, computer animation just so I could start doing this type of stuff. Yeah. Was there a performance or a movie or a process or an animator that you like that kind of made you latch on to the animation field, or was it just kind of like? the way to use science to be creative that really appealed to you? So back when I started, I mean, it wasn't like today where, you know, you go online, there's a million resources. But there was a few. And one artist in particular, his name was uh, Chris Costa. And he, st he still works today. But he, he was just putting out amazing stuff. I was like, wow, how does he do that? So um, you, you, you just sort of you find people and you try to emulate what they do and you start to develop your own style. So. Uh, that, was, that was the one that I remember the most that really got me into, into doing this 
So there are, when we go to the movies and we see an animated film, we see the final presentation. But if you ever watch or read through the credits, you see that it takes an entire team. So um, if you could just kind of take us through the process, not the entire process of animating a film, but what are some things that go in, that are involved in creating an animated film? Yeah, uh, and, and that long list of people, it's, it's, it's crazy because if you look at Pixar, they put out a movie about every three years, and that's with hundreds of people working on this. So you can imagine how long it takes. So the way it starts is you come up with the idea, you uh, you know make a script, that you storyboard it out. Storyboarding means just drawing out the, the different shots. Uh, from there, you go into production, where you know you build all the assets. So everything, if if it's computer animated, everything has to be built. Uh, so you build the world, you build the characters, you build all the props. You you know you you, you put the clothes on them and everything else. Then you do what's called rigging. Rigging is you take your characters and you put a skeleton in them and you, you get them to be able to move. Then you hand that to the animator. The animator does the performance. They get it all looking nice. They give that, you know, texture artists need to put all the colors and, and you know, if the character is wearing like a jean, like jeans, they got to make it look like jeans, things like that. Um, from there it goes to lighting and then rendering. So lighting, just like there's lights everywhere, you got to light everything to make it look good. Then you render it out, which is the process of, of actually producing those, those final frames. And this can take a long time uh, because, you know, calculating light, you know, physics and all this can take a long time. Then you go to editing, you go to, you know, color correcting, compositing. Compositing means you put everything together and then you go to editing and then you put out the final thing. So it's a very long process and it takes a while. So out of all that process, what would you say is your favorite part? Or what, what do you like being most involved in? Um, so I started out as a modeler. So I was, I was the guy building stuff. And that's just because when I, when, you know, I'm sort of self-taught in this. And that's what we did, right? When you start, you got to learn how to build stuff. And I, I just sort of stayed there uh, because I enjoyed it so much. So that that would probably be my favorite. But then I did get into the what we call dynamic simulation. So things like you know cloth simulation you put clothes on characters they move like actual cloth water simulation as well you know fire hair i do like to do that stuff as well but probably modeling is, is the main one so what all is involved in modeling from a, a computer standpoint it, are you sitting there beforehand like sketching things out on a notepad and then visualizing it or do you just go to your computer and just like okay i'm gonna t i'm gonna take on the task right now you know different people do it different ways i'm not i i can draw but i don't really enjoy it so I, I tend to design stuff on the computer. I just go right into 3D and start pushing and pulling stuff until I have something I like. Or if it's real, sort of real world based, I just, if I'm building a computer or whatever, you know, I just find one and then build, you know, the, the 3D version of that. So it just depends. A lot of people do like to draw. Obviously having those skills is, is a plus. But for me, I just, I like to just get in the computer and do it. Now I know a lot of artists they like to work independently to develop their own craft. So whether you're a painter and just sitting there and painting, or if you're a designer, it seems like an animation project, even a short film, like we've talked about before, has a lot of people involved in it. Now, do you prefer the solo aspect of it, where you can do your own models and design yourself? Or do you like interacting with other animators, with other lighting experts, with other designers? Like, wh wh Where do you kind of fit in, or where do you like to fit in the most? Um, I kind of like both actually. So, like you say, you know, a completed film takes a lot of people. Now, you can't do it by yourself. I, you know, my MFA thesis is a film I made by myself. 
generally that's not what people do because you tend to specialize in, in, in your specific thing. So for me, it's mainly modeling. So I'm not great at animation and, and you know, some of these other things just because that was never my focus. But you can do it. Personally, I like to model stuff. I like to build, you know, build stuff and then texture and make them look real nice. Uh, or do some dynamic simulations, water simulations. I did one in my last job. It was a Halloween thing and they had a restaurant with specials and they wanted blood to come flying out of the doors of the restaurant. So I just made a 3D version of the restaurant and then did the simulation of that blood pouring out of there. So little things like that are fun for me. Interesting. So it looks like when you originally got your degree in computer science, it was around 2002 and your master's in 2006. If you look at animated films, and the one I'm thinking of immediately is um, the Toy Story franchise. If you look at the first one, it's very well animated, but if you look at the first one through the fourth one, a lot of advancements have been made. And there are so many films and, and series like that what are some major advancements that you've seen in your career in animation that you think really have helped the field out, really has made animated films much more prominent? Yeah, so when I started out, things like claw simulation were not, I mean, you, you could find uh, programs that would do it, but it was not very reliable. You needed, you know, the beefiest computer you could find. You still need pretty beefy computers now. But it was so new that we, you know, we weren't doing it. So character clothing just sort of moved with the body, but it didn't flow like cloth and fold. So that has come a long way. Water simulation as well. Uh, just having rivers and, and you know water just rushing through everywhere would have been close to impossible with some, without like a room full of computers to do all those calculations. The lighting, lighting that how we light our scenes. Before you had to shine a light on an object, and you know light wouldn't bounce unless you turned on some things which would then slow everything down tremendously. Now you kind of get the bounce light and, and it, you know all the physical things get calculated really nicely. You know, the different camera things. Like Toy Story 1, if you look at it, pretty much everything was in focus. Yes. Where if you look at so later ones, you have things that are blurred out of focus, you know, like a real camera would. And, and you know, things like depth of field, we call that depth of field, things like that, just, just a lot of computational power required to do it, especially if, you, if you're rendering out at 4K now. It, it takes a lot of power. So just the, the, the advancement of the software as they sort of made it better and better and refined it, but then also just the computers getting better, better and better. I mean, you know, back when I started, if you had, I don't know, 16 gigs of RAM, you were, no, not even 16 gigs, I'm sorry. If you had like, uh, we, we were talking in megabytes. <laughs> like a 256 megabyte right, RAM. Right. <laughs> uh, my first computer was a Pentium 2, it was a 450 megahertz, Oof. which by today's standards is, is calculator, you know. Um, just with, with, with the hardware getting better, with the software being more complex, we're just able to do more just nice looking stuff on, on the computer you have at home, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's incredible. It's just incredible. Do you think that has caused the field of animation to be more accessible to hobbyists or to people that are interested in it? Or do you think because the software is so advanced, it's kind of almost shut that out? Do you, do you think it's it's opening up the field to more people? Absolutely. So again, when I started, if you wanted the software, you were paying, you know, we, we use software called Maya. You were paying like three to $5,000 for a license. Just for the license. And then probably about 1500 2000 a year just in maintenance to get upgrades and whatnot. Um, so it, it was a little out of reach for the average person. Now we have software called like Blender is, is a software we have that's free. And it does all it does all the stuff that the that the 
you know the more professional programs use uh, do, but uh, maybe not quite as well, but but close. So you know you got you know fifteen year olds, fourteen year olds doing this stuff now, and with the internet and tutorials everywhere. You go on YouTube, I mean you you, you can teach yourself this, a lot of this stuff. So with the evidence of you know everybody having broadband, you know we started on modems <laughs> that you had to wait for the thing to connect, and it was slow, slow, slow. But now you can watch, you know, high resolution video real time uh, with the internet. So the training's right there uh, if you want to learn a specific piece of software. So just the advancement of the internet has really helped with getting, you know, anybody that, that ever wanted to try it can. Uh, and they can find training online free or paid. Uh, so yeah, things are, it's, I, I say this to my students all the time, you know, you guys are lucky. <laughs> <laughs> When I started, we didn't have near as much. We had a little bit, and I like to model cars. So, you know, looking for car tutorials that were in-depth, I couldn't find any. So actually, I ended up writing two of them myself wow. as a process of learning. Um, and they, they sort of took off and helped a lot of people get in the modeling of, of vehicles just because, you know, I had to do it because, I, you know, it's how you learn. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah and I, I've even noticed, like, in the uh, animated Pixar series, Cars itself, even that has come a long way from the original concept. So I, I, it's it's interesting to see how closely they get to, while maintaining the integrity as a children's cartoon, yeah. still very realistic, very accurate when it comes to modeling the cars itself. Yeah. So, and I, and I think that kind of not only shows the technique of the animator, but also the storytellers, too. So it's nice to see the the storytellers and the animation all, all working together to, to create that. So if, if you could talk a little bit about your career as an animator, as a modeler, one of your short films, The Raccoon and Crawfish, which was designed after an Oneida Native American story yep. that was screened at the Cannes Film Festival. You've done video animation work for Syracuse football team and basketball team. So talk about your experience, some of the projects you've worked on and some, some of the projects you're most proud of. Yeah, so I started my career working for Four Directions Productions out in uh, central New York. It was a small studio, only like 10, 10 of us there, uh, owned by Native Americans, the Oneida Indian Nation. And they owned a casino out there, and what they wanted to do was preserve their culture, their stories, through animation. Because a lot of their, their stories are so uh, orally preserved, and, and you know they wanted a, something that would last longer. So... Uh, we made a couple short films there, just and the Raccoon and Crawfish was one of them. And we, we also did like video work, so we did music videos, we did, uh, for Syracuse University, we did some promos for their football team, for the basketball teams, and you know, I got to do some, some stuff on there. There's certain projects that I got to work on just by myself. There's one project I had a week to do, which was kind of ridiculous. But we got it done, little, little, you know, the animated logo for the Syracuse uh, uh, Syracuse football. Uh, so yeah, we, you know, I, I got to do things like that. Uh, and I've been there for, I was there for 10 years. So 10 years of that. And then I came here and it's just nice to be able to, you know, pass the knowledge on to the younger generation. Uh, because it, this field is not going anywhere. It's, it's so, you know, it, it keeps getting better and better. Computers keep getting more powerful. It, it's, it's, you know, 10 years from now, it's going to be insane to see what, uh, what's going on. Yeah. So uh, talk about that uh, raccoon and crawfish video itself. What, what are some things that you did? And tell us a little bit about the, the story behind it too, because I think that's kind of an interesting thing to to take, a, like you said, an oral tradition and turn it into something visual that even if you don't necessarily know the backstory of the Oneida 
Native American tribe, it's still something that can be entertaining for you, but you can also learn a bit too. Yeah, so the raccoon and crawfish is basically a story about lying. It's meant to teach kids not to lie. The, rac- the, the, uh, the raccoon is out hunting for crawfish, and he, he's not having any luck, so what happens is he plays dead, and then one of the, one of the crawfish, who's the, he's a bit of a mischievous guy, goes and pokes him and, you know, sees and thinks he's dead. So he decides to go lie to his tribe and say he killed the raccoon. And they all come to see the raccoon, and when they all get there, the raccoon jumps up and, and eats him. And it's basically just teaching kids the consequences of lying uh, to those around you and, and what could happen. Because they all, they all end up getting eaten. The last scene is them inside the stomach of the, of the raccoon, and he says, you're a liar. So... You know, little lessons like that is what, what they try to, to uh, teach the children, but in a way that children would like. Because my kids love that, you know, when they were younger. Now they, you know, they're a little older now, but they love that, that little movie. Yeah. So, yeah. So when you approach a project, and I know sometimes, depending on who you're working for, there's client work that you must do, but there's also creative things that you can really start to enjoy and start to become part of your own life. Like... When you approach a story like Raccoon and Crawfish or even the football videos or some things that you do independently, do you feel that you really need to get involved in the story to make a good animation or do you need to – or is there just some things that you can cross off like a checklist? Like how do you approach that story? Does it have to be to, to hit you in the in the heartstrings first before you can really get involved or is it something that you can yeah. just do? So – with a story like that, what you do is you you, um, you look into the culture a little bit more because obviously that's not my culture. And you, you try to get a feel for the people of that culture. And then you try to take the story. Now, you don't have to take that story and make it exactly the same. You could put your sort of spin on it to make it interesting for the kids. Um, so that, that, that really helps with your creativity as an animator. Uh, being able to just to step into it and try to try to make it authentic though make it make it authentic to the people and obviously because my my boss is well Native American you got to run it through them first oh, make sure. sure you know and we had a lot of notes that came back from uh, some of the bosses just because there's certain things that we just might not know as 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 not being part of the culture but uh, definitely you got to immerse yourself in it um, you know I learned a lot about Native Americans working there so that helped a lot as well yeah definitely so. I feel like in the last, you know, even four or five years, speaking of culture and animation, there's a lot more content out there related to different cultures. So you have, and I know you have some opinions on the animation itself, but the the Black Panther movie mm-hmm. was a was a big cultural icon. We have the movie Coco, which is about the Mexican tradition of Dia de los Muertos. Talk about that kind of shift in perspective, because if you look at even the early Disney movies, a lot of them were young white princesses and there wasn't a lot of culture until there was Pocahontas, which had a lot of holes in it as far as yeah. truth and history. Right. So how has that come, in your experience, how have we come along to kind of be more inclusive with the culture of animation? Well, uh, a lot of those, you know, people can now tell their own stories through animation. Uh, like I said before, this, this, this field is, is becoming more and more accessible. So just looking... Back in Africa now, there's, there's a lot more studios that are owned by locals. Mm, interesting. And they're, they're, you know, uh, there's one I think in Nigeria that's doing some really good work. Uh, there's a few in South Africa that are doing some good work. So, you know, I think people have seen that it's okay to tell your stories for the world to see. 
and and you know be your true self. You know, Black Panther was a big one for, especially for American uh, in this country for Black people here, just because it showed Black people in a very positive light. You know, they're superheroes too; they've got the powers too. Uh, and you know, if you look back, you know, black black exploitation movies and things like that, black people were not typically shown in a very positive light. So with this, you know, as as we've sort of advanced with, with animation, we can tell some of these these uh, old stories that have never been heard before through animation, and it's a really good medium for that type of stuff because you you can introduce the world to some of these stories that that they know nothing about that are very interesting stories. So definitely. Animation has helped with that, but film too, just, just regular film as well, has helped with introducing the world to other cultures. And, you know, personally, I, I love that. I love for students to, if they're going to make a film, to make one that, that, you know, refers to their culture. And I did for my MFA as well. My, my MFA film uh, was, was sort of based in my own culture as well. So, uh, you know, I've been a proponent of that for a long time now. Yeah, and... I feel like there's a lot of a push to not necessarily correct cultural mistakes from the past, but if you look at, uh, if, you, if you log on to Disney+, Plus, they, they, have, they have warnings that say about the cultural depictions, and there's even a, a, a film that Disney doesn't even show anymore because of how it portrayed the characters. How do you think the, the culture behind animation is, gonna ch is going to change, or wh where is it going to go from here? Do you see a lot of cultural focus, or do you think that's going to become a normal part of the storytelling? Yeah, I'd like to think it would become a normal part of the storytelling because, you know, America is such a culturally diverse place. Uh, I think it's, in this day and age, it's kind of natural that it will go that way. Uh, we got lots of people making films, people from all kinds of different backgrounds and, and, and what have you. So I, I think we will see a lot more of that, uh, that type of cultural-based work, uh, which I think overall is just a good thing for the world as a whole. Um, because, you know, I... Like, I'm from Botswana, as you said, and I grew up on American TV, mm -hmm. you know, and we sort of get inundated with this American culture everywhere. And, you know, I always joke that everything's set in New York, and I'm like, <laughs> my goodness, you know. So, like, we were, my wife and I were watching Breaking Bad some years back, and that was set in New Mexico, and that was refreshing. So, being able to, to see something more than just the typical American, sort of white American stories... Uh, I think is, is a great way for, for the industry to go, um, and I hope to see more of that. Yeah, if you, if you look at the, you know, Batman was in Gotham, which is New York. You yeah. see Spider-Man, you see yeah. all these big cities. So, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting perspective, and that kind of makes people more curious uh, as an audience, too. So we mentioned earlier, I think, off, off tape that you lived in near Fargo, North Dakota, and there was a Fargo TV show and a movie about that, too. So it almost makes your audience a little more curious about that. So I'm interested to see, you know, where this field goes. Yeah. Um, so are you the type of person, I, I like to I like to write, and when I'm reading, sometimes I get caught up in the writing itself that I miss out on some of the story, where I'm looking at the words and the punctuation, how they stylize quotes. Simple question, can, can you enjoy movies? <laughs> can you enjoy animated <laughs> movies? Are you always looking at it like, oh, I bet they did this, this, and this, or look at the lighting here, or I would have done this to make their blue jeans look more realistic? <laughs> like, how do you approach watching a movie? Or do, do you pick those kind of things out? Yeah, uh, I do, and, and I annoy my wife to no end. <laughs> um, because, especially with story elements, I, a lot of times I can tell what's gonna happen. Just because I know how stories are put together, the structure and all this. 
uh, and I'll say it, and then it'll happen, and my wife will be like, I hate you. <laughs> Why'd you ruin this for me? Yeah. Um, but I, I, I do try to also enjoy the film. Like, uh, Into the Spider-Verse was, was such an amazing film that, you know, I could just watch that. It, from, from a tech, I can appreciate the technical work that went into it, um, and I do notice it, but then the story was really good, too. So it, it was kind of a balance of that. I think if, a story, if, if the story is not great, then I probably will focus more on the, the, the technical stuff. And I have ADD, so that doesn't... You know, it's hard for me to focus anyway, but if a story is good, I tend to focus no problem. So movies like Into the Spider-Verse will tend to, to do that for me. Uh, just like you, we talked about uh, Toy Story. If I watch the first Toy Story, now I'm just noticing all the flaws. Sure. Just because I've seen the film, it's a great story, but now, I'm not, you know, it, it looks dated, it looks aged, you know, the lighting is not as, as nice as, as it should be, just because it is older. So um, it just, it depends on, on how well the, the story is put together. And I listened to an interview with you when you were talking about Black Panther. Such a great cultural depiction, uh, great superhero, but you had some opinions on the, the animation and some of the, some of the work they did. Talk, talk about that and what you noticed when you were, when you were watching. It's an incredible movie. I'm not a big superhero movie, but I, I was glued to that one. The storyline was great. Uh, Chadwick Boseman was yeah. exceptional. But talk about what, what you, kind of some of the things you noticed when you were watching it. Yeah, so with that film, and this was like industry-wide, everybody was like, oh my God, what's going on there? It's uh, like there was a scene where they're fighting down in, in, the, in the crater, and the, char the characters were just really floating and very computer-animated looking. And that was in the trailer. And we were, you know, most people were like, okay, they'll fix it by the time it comes out, and they never did. They never did. <laughs> that, that was the final footage. And, you know, it, it just felt like a disservice to, to that film because we know they can do it right. Because if, uh, you know, if you watch the Infinity War movies, you know, Thanos was an entire villain that was completely computer-generated, and they nailed, nailed it. So we know they have the capabilities. But for that movie, for some reason, they, they you know, it looked like someone just rushed through the animation. Uh, and that did pull me out of it. That, that one did, did pull me out of it because it was so obvious. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I didn't notice that and I wasn't too happy. Yeah, there was, um, uh, I'm a big fan of the TV show Frasier, which was aired yeah. in the 90s. And one of the quotes they had was, the only thing better than a perfect meal is a perfect meal with one flaw that you can pick apart for the rest of the night. So, <laughs> so I think for all intents and purposes, that was a great movie. But yeah. that, that one flaw is something that you kind of remember yeah. from it. Unfortunately, yeah. So it, it is what it is. I mean... You know, there's so many reasons why, you know, less than perfect animation can end up in a film. Budgets, you know, time, you got to get things out. It is what it is. I understand. I get it. Uh, but, you know, you do notice it. So when you are working on an animation project or you're modeling or... I, I kind of liken it to, like, a musician who's writing a song. A people, musicians are always asked, do you think of the melody first or do you think of the words or how does that go about... If you're designing a character or you're designing, you know, a storyline, what usually comes first? Is it the story that you read and then design a character based on that? Or have you ever designed a character and then kind of built a story based on your designs or the, the character that you put together? I think it can go either way. The key to designing a compelling character is to flesh them out as far as who they are. So... Meaning that, you, you know, who is this person? Even before you actually physically design them, but just laying out who this person is, um, you know, how do they think, that informs the design choices that you might put in there. And then if you, if you have a story, 
you know, whatever the world is that they live in. Like, I, you know, I, I, I've written a couple scripts just for myself, which will probably not go anywhere, but uh, <laughs> there's one post-apocalyptic one with, uh, with a female character in it. And, you know, you, you just got to think about, you know, she's, she's a strong, you know, black woman. Think about all the things she's been through to get her to that point. Because all that stuff will inform how you write that character in the story. So how they react to certain situations, it all comes from knowing who that. You can't just say I need a female and just just go with generic yeah. female. Um, you got you got to really think it through so that when you put those design choices in there, it makes sense. And then when you see them acted out, then it, it makes sense there as well. So uh, that's 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 how I tend to, to flesh out my characters because your characters have to be consistent in who they are. Now they you know during the course of of their arc in the story, they can change to be something else, which is typical. Uh, but it has to make sense. Everything, everything they do and say has to make sense. In script writing, you know, I took some script writing classes, and you know, people will write, will write dialogue, and someone will say that, that that doesn't sound like something that character would say. Interesting. Because you know, once you've established how a character is, if the dialogue doesn't sort of follow that, then it, it doesn't it doesn't feel right. Interesting. Yeah. So. What are, what are some of the major lessons that you teach your students when it comes to developing a character? Because I know there's, there has to be a little bit of you know, autobiographical elements to it, or there's, there's uh, somebody you met that you want to capture in a story, or maybe you watched a, a, a movie and you want to take elements. Like, what are some of the, the first lessons that you talk about when designing a character? And, and this applies to pretty much the whole process of making, you know, Whatever it is that you're doing is you, you got to have a clear sort of idea. You got you, so observational skills is is one I stress a lot. If you're going to create anything in this field, you need to be able to observe it out there because it's generally based on on, on real world. Uh, you know how 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 you build a face, for example. Well, you got to study faces. Everybody thinks they know what a face looks looks like until you go to try to build one, and it's like wow, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, so you you. Even though you see faces every day, you don't really know what you know, what makes up a face. So being able to to observe, and then recreate, think, and again, just thinking thinking more than just I need to make a human. Like who is this human? Uh, you know, I, I got I got a class I'm teaching now, advanced modeling, and we're building you know human heads, and we and I have another class, computer four, which with some of my students are building uh, characters in there. And they, they need to think about that. Who, who is this guy? Even if you're never going to animate this character, you're never going to do anything with it, think about that stuff because that will help you really flesh out the character and make it believable instead of just a generic human head. Really, it's just a matter of being able to observe. I mean, you, you can, you'd be surprised how much you can learn about a person just watching them walk by you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how they walk. Everybody walks different. You know, do they slump? Do they stand up straight? Are they bouncy and happy, you know, it, 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 there's so much you can get off a person without ever talking to them, just watching them walk by you. So being able to do that is a good skill. Yeah. So what, aside from, you know, capturing essentially what a person is like, what are some of the most difficult parts about animation? Is it seeing a concept on paper and then making it come alive or, you know, working with a team or what are some of the, the major hurdles that you have to overcome as an animator? Um... Wow, I mean, you know, I guess every part could be could be pretty difficult, but especially if you if you want it to be believable, then doing your due diligence to to uh, 
to reproduce whatever it is that you so if for example if you're doing an actual character animation again everybody thinks they know what a person how a person walks but you study people you realize oh my god everybody walks different <laughs> so what are those differences what is that you know being able to then take that and put it into your work uh, if you want if you want to be an actual character animator you got to be a good actor yourself and if you if you look at a lot of documentaries about you know making ups of, of animated films all the animators have cameras on their desks because they need to film themselves doing it first. They don't just sit down and start animating generally. You know, being given a concept by somebody else, work that is not your style, and then having to recreate that to that level, that's a difficult one as well. Especially if you, so if you've got, on a big production, you have multiple modelers. Mm -hmm. And you know, this, you might, you know, they might all have a different character to build, and they all have to be cohesive. They all have to fit within that style. So you you, you got to be careful putting your own flair into everything when you're doing somebody else's this is work there. So it, it's tough trying to build somebody else's vision. I think that, that that's probably one of the hardest things is, is trying to, to accurately build somebody else's vision to the way they want it, regardless of what you think about it. Because if you're an animator, typically you're, you're, you're not decision-making at all, unless right. you're sort of at the higher animator, animator level. So it's like, this is what it has to be, make it look like that. If you're a modeler, same thing. So uh, it's, it's pretty difficult to do that and do it well. So aside from all the, the difficulties with, you know, communication or having to work together and, you know, kind of disagreeing on things, what are some of the more rewarding things about it? Like, how did, how did you feel the first time you took your animation, you saw it actually on a big screen? Like, what does that feel like as an animator, as a modeler? It's an incredible feeling because, you know, you think about it, you're probably months into this project, years even, and to see it completed. Because sometimes it feels like this thing will never end. It's just <laughs> going to keep going and going and going. Uh, and you burn out, you know. You burn out, especially if you're in the bigger studios. You know, when it gets to crunch time, getting close to release date, you might be doing 16-hour days, you know, regularly. So to see that finally up there and then to have it be received well uh, is incredibly rewarding. Uh, and it just sort of hypes you up for the next project. So that's one of the things I really like about it. What has been your most rewarding or your most proud moment as, an, as a professional animator? Just seeing some of my work up on like the Syracuse Stadium for one, where they had it up on one of the, some of these bigger screens. That, that, was, that, was, uh, that was intense. Uh, knowing that our, our film got screened at the Cannes Film Festival, I didn't get to go, but just knowing that that was there, my work was being seen there, well, was, was massive for me, so things like that. I can't imagine what it's like seeing your, your name in the credits on a major film. I know we have a lot of students from Edinburgh who are involved in some giant films, and being able to see your name in the credits oh. has, to be, it has to be a great feeling. Yeah, it's just, for me, so I, I, never, I never worked in any other big, massive studio. I worked in that small studio, but I have a friend of mine who worked at DreamWorks, mm -hmm. worked at Blue Sky, and now he's working at Illumination. I'm always looking for his name because I, I feel a sense of pride there because we went to school together. You know, to see his name there was was big for me too. Just to see that uh, somebody made it that to that high of a level was uh, really rewarding for me. Definitely. So I think to wrap things up, the final question: We talked a little bit earlier about how animation has become a little more accessible with the less expensive software and the YouTube tutorials, and you know, getting a degree at Edinburgh is is not a huge hit to the bank too is a bit relatively affordable so if you're a young high schooler or middle schooler and you're interested in animation what what are some tips uh to, it would it be first to just observe watch films watch people or you know how can you get started 
Yeah, so typically if you are looking to get into this field, you're into animated movies or you're into, you know, effects heavy movies, Jurassic Park, that type with the dinosaurs. That's good. That's the first step is, is loving this stuff. And you go, oh my God, I want to I learn how to do it. Then, then go out there and find the tools. And they're there. Uh, there's a software called Blender, which is free. And it's you know incredibly powerful software. It's kind of incredible they're giving it away for free <laughs> for what you what you can do in it. The tutorials are all there on YouTube, all over the internet. You can find the training. So if you if you really love this stuff, nobody's got to tell you to do it. You just you just kind of do it. Uh, and with with the internet being as it is, it's all there, really easy to find. You can be in this stuff you know immediately. You can start you know if if you decide you want to do it today, you can go download the software. It's free. And you can start building stuff that day. So I would say if, if this is really what you want to do, get out there and do it. Just work on projects for yourself. They're going to look horrible at the beginning. It's the way you got to get all the horrible stuff out of the way before you start to make the better stuff. So it's easy to get frustrated and be like, oh, you know, I give up. But you got you just hang on. Just, just hold on. Just push through. Things will start to get better. And if you keep your old work, so as you build stuff, just hold on. Don't delete everything because you hated it. Hold on to it. Every year, just compare the work that you did beginning of the year to the end of the year. And you'll be shocked at how much of an improvement there is there. And then if you really want to do it professionally, you know, find a school. Come over here. Come over to Edinburgh and we'll, we'll, get, you, we'll get you ready for it. Sounds good. Yeah. I mean, I imagine people at Pixar watching the first Toy Story they can look at me like, oh my gosh, what were we thinking? Or they can see like, wow, look at how far we've come. Yeah. Like even I'm thinking about the uh, Incredibles. Like the first Incredibles movie was not the best, not really great anime. But the second one was like, wow, this yeah. is this is this is incredible. This is a this is a great film to watch. So yeah, yeah and, and seeing your progress and your growth, not only does it show that you're able to have that growth, but that you've you've come a long way. So Parabo Laguela, thank you so much for joining us here today on Tard Talks. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about animation. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right.